Hello and welcome to the Damn Interesting Week podcast. We are so excited you've decided to join us and we have an amazing set of articles to discuss with you today. If you're new and you're just joining us, we come from damninteresting.com. On our website, we have lots of long-form original articles, but we also have a curated links section where we collect the best, most interesting stuff from around the web and get it all in one place for you so you don't have to sift through all of the questionable material that one can find on the internet. We do that work for you. Our Damn Interesting Week podcast is a rundown of these links. There's so many out there, we're not going to get to all of them, but hopefully we'll get you a good taste. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. I'm Courtney Hopkins. And I'm Angela Epley. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Uh, Okay, so as uh, I think we all kind of know one way or another, though most of us, certainly I don't really grok what it means, but according to quantum physics, the act of observing a quantum system of particles actually uh, changes that system's location or state. uh, And that's what we mean when we say quantum uncertainty, right? Yeah, that's like Schrodinger's cat and Heisenberg uncertainty principle and all that good stuff. Right, right. Now, okay, so in 1961, uh, Eugene Wigner proposed a quantum thought experiment involving a person performing coin flips in a closed box and an observer outside the box uh, where the observer is also a quantum object of some kind. Look, please don't press me with questions as I attempt to summarize this because I am not beyond the like, whoa, dude, level of appreciation of science. But our study (laughs) suggests objective reality doesn't exist. Like scientifically, they're saying we've demonstrated. Uh, Stay tuned. All right. (laughs) Stay tuned. This is a roller coaster ride of um, theory and things that are impossible to understand. Uh, to normal minds like ours. Okay, so this is uh, a study by uh, Massimiliano Proietti and Ooh. Alessandro Fedrizzi. So Italian. I hope I did this okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your Italian's <laughs> much better than your Spanish. That's good. Or you, not Spanish, your science. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying my best to do right by these guys. Two quantum physics researchers at Harriet Watt University. <laughs> Proietti and Federici set out to realize this experiment uh, on a small quantum computer made up of three pairs of entangled photons. Okay, the first photon pair represents the coins. The other two are used to perform the coin toss, uh, measuring the polarization of the photons inside their respective boxes. So in other words, this is like the observer is a quantum object. The observer sees one result of this coin toss, which is a kind of quantum coin toss. And this can differ from the observation of the particles performing the coin toss, and both can be correct. So not only are we collapsing a a certain position out of what is actually just like a range of possible positions, we're getting two contradictory results on the quantum level, and both are correct. So... This feels to me like the old thing, like one of us always tells the truth and one of us always lies. And you have to mm. ask the question of the questioner. Like you have to go through yeah, two yeah, channels. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's some kind of weird, cra- crazy, big brain thing like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Well, I take a little bit of beef with the fact that these were physicists, right? Quantum physicists doing the work. But ultimately, the way the lead sounded was a very philosophical kind of question. And I know there's a lot of overlap with theoretical physics and philosophy. Yeah. But, I mean, 
You're thinking they should stay in their lane, basically. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, what, what do the philosophers have to say about this, too? I know there are lots of bodies of thought on both sides, you know, objective reality, subjective reality. But mm -hmm. Right. As I understand it, the question was always quantum physics. Does that fundamentally only explain the way things are when they get super, super, super tiny? And the fact is we just have to accept, yeah, there's two different types of physics. There's physics for things that are super, super small and subatomic, and then there's physics for everything that's bigger. The rest of us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes, in some crazy way on the subatomic level, contradictory truths can be true, but mm -hmm. once things get big, only one thing can be true at once. But if we apply that quantum thinking to the large-scale level, then mm -hmm. everything, very fall dicey. everything falls apart. Mm -hmm. Things right. get real complicated because nothing's real and uh, there's a zillion universes and you know i don't know i don't know i mean i'm just a guy i'm just trying to <laughs> i'm just trying to put my pants on keep my shoes nearby well so but what you're saying basically is like you know the ob observation changes the state of it so if i ignore the article if i choose not to observe what's in there then it's not true then the, all, the, all of the study that they did, is it, it's invalid because I haven't looked at it. That's true, but you've observed it through me because now you know ah! about it. So I think, yeah, relate. Yeah, sorry. What have you done by saying this on a podcast? Now you really <laughs> messed things up. Yeah, I, sorry. Breaking news. Everything's really confusing, guys. Uh, you heard it here first. I'm sorry. Everything's really confusing. Thank you for bringing the truth to the people. <laughs> all right. Next link. Next, next link. link. Uh, so babies, right? Yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they get hiccups. Aww. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have, have a 11 year old and he is very prone to hiccups and always has been. And he, they were very upsetting for him. I don't know why. I guess he just doesn't like the sensation, but, uh, some scientists studied, uh, <laughs> brain waves during hiccups on newborns and infants. And it turns out that they could be key to brain development. Like, uh, you need to get the hiccups to properly develop? Uh, then, you know, what is subjective reality? <laughs> what is objective reality? So, Who can say? So you're saying every time you do a hiccup, nice little divot opens mm -hmm. up in the gray matter. Exactly. Put some, okay. Well, I mean, it's basically like a beta test of our systems functioning, yes. right? Like, yes. is your diaphragm actually connecting to the thing that is causing the, like... Yeah, no, that's... Yeah. Just... Which yes. is important for breathing, so you yes. want to... So the researchers found that uh, when the diaphragm contracts, every hiccup produced these big brain waves uh, in these newborns. And newborns spend, like, 1% of their time hiccuping, which is, like, 15 minutes a day. So that's a lot. That does seem like a lot of... I don't remember watching my kids hiccup that often. I felt like mine hiccuped a lot. <laughs> well, uh, you were taking yeah. up the slack. Between yeah. us, we averaged. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Your son was. Does, uh, does yours have... Uh, yeah, Hal used to hiccup quite a bit, but when, when he was tiny. It's... I don't know if it was a crazy amount, though. Well, it's not... Yeah. Again, 15 minutes a day. I mean, that's more than we spend. For I don't sure. remember the last time I got hiccups. I'm trying to imagine that, like, you know, you have this baby and it starts hiccuping and you're like, quick, get the electrodes on mm -hmm. its skull. Like, that's, they had to have hooked <laughs> these kids up earlier and then just waited for them to get the hiccups. Yeah. What led them to go, hey, <laughs> let's put some, some electrodes things. on a baby. And then they'd put them right on their, on their yeah. scalp. Yeah. And babies are hiccuping well in early in uh, gestation. They're, they start hiccuping at like nine weeks or something like that while yeah. they're in. Like in the womb? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and I remember feeling that. I don't know if you do. Not at all. But uh, <laughs> it was a long time ago. I remember feeling when uh, he would hiccup. It's like this weird little like. 
this little Jolt. spasm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to see the follow-up study for adults. Like, if I get the hiccups, does it help me? Could I like? Could no. I get big brain waves? No. I'm okay. going to say it just uh, depletes. <laughs> it's set in stone by like, now. Can I'm I just done. say, hiccups are annoying, y'all. They are. I hate them. Yeah. I. It's so That's irrationally right. mad. He does. <laughs> like, he violently does. angry. Yes, he gets so upset. That's... He like he has to stop whatever he's doing, <laughs> and he has to find March some water. March to the sink angrily, get the, like, and drink from the opposite side because really... that's my. You're really not going to like this. My husband can willfully stop the hiccups. Oh. Like, he, and he's so proud of it too. He gets one, and he's like, "Okay, hang on. All right, they're gone." And I'm like, oh, that. Oh, he must God. be getting some kind of fourth brain wave or something. Yeah. He's got something. It's weird. He said he oh. hated it. It was because he hated it as a kid. And he was like, I mind over matter. I'm going to control this thing. And he would just sit in the bathroom, like, willing it to stop. And somehow he'd say, I don't know. One of the two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next link. Next, next link. Um, this one's a video. So I really encourage you to go on Damn Interesting at the curated links to check this one out because it's a 1967 educational film that predicts the technology we'd be using in the future. And I have a serious soft spot for retro futurism. I love that stuff. All of its flavors. Um, but this one uploaded by YouTube user Adam Kwiatkowski. It's pretty good. So it's only like a minute, nine seconds of what's actually on the link. Um, some things that they got right, they have an interactive television screen and they take, you know, they show someone going through the process of making an at-home purchase. Um, they even showed them using a credit card for purchases. Oh, wow. The thing that was a little bit retrofuturism about it was that the point of sale credit card reader was embedded into the table. So you're like scanning in your house. Baby. Yeah, it was sort of like a vertical insert as opposed to whatever else. But I mean, you know, for 1967, pretty darn close. Mm -hmm. Everything else was very built in, uh, none of the kind of a la carte standalone monitors and things that we're used to. I've seen some, you know, flat screen TVs that have been um, fully flush and embedded with the wall, but this was really taken to its late 60s, early 70s design extreme. Yeah. They were big into integration in the 60s. It was yeah. like, it's all going to be built into the wall mm -hmm. and their appliances and everything. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, just part but, of the house. Exactly. Yeah. But they did have flat screens. They even had um, a girl using like a small child doing like a stylus with sort of like a tablet or type of interface. So, mm -hmm. I mean, they got a lot of things right on this, um, including working from home. They touted you'd be able to work from home through cables. Right, of mysterious course. cables. I mean, we all know that they're actually a series of tubes, but right. yeah. pretty close. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and they also sort of failed to account for inflation. I think the lady who did the <laughs> online purchase, she was buying a lawn sprinkler piece, and it was only six ninety five. Which, to be fair, if it was just a little peripheral, maybe it would still be that price. But that's right; they they weren't counting on that, mm -hmm. not at that time. So cool video. What was the? Uh, were there any fashion um, choices in the video of note? Uh, where's everyone just drew? Sadly, there wasn't any re retro futurism fashion. Uh, yeah. So no lame. There wasn't uh, like Big full silver collars. Right. I love it when they suits. have like uh, Saturn's rings around their heads, <laughs> or around the arms, <laughs> arm pieces. Oh, I love it. It's I think so... Rainbow Bright had some of that. She did. Her situation. Absolutely. No, we were just had sort of like high waisted slacks, slight flares, bowl cuts. Uh, and it might come back. They could still be right. I am wearing bell bottoms right now. I'm, I'm not, I don't have a bowl cut. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll bring it back piecemeal. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah. All right. I'll do the bowl cut. There you go. You'll be the sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. This one, I was genuinely so excited when I read it. I was like, oh, this is, I'm so going to talk about this article. So this, call, this comes from Experience Magazine, an author named Paul Heltzel. Quick little background information. So there's two types of diabetes, right? 
There's type one, which is the autoimmune childhood onset. Your pancreas just stops working. You got to go straight to the finger pricks and the insulin jabs. And then type two is lifestyle-based, and you can actually affect that by diet and everything. But type one, you're taking finger pricks and shots for the rest of your life. So there have been a whole bunch of technological advances in the last couple of decades where there are automated things now. Like, for example, they have a continuous glucose monitor, which basically just stays ever so slightly under your skin 24 hours a day and gives you just this running tab of what your blood sugar is. So that has obviously eliminated the finger pricks, and that's really cool. And then separately, they have an insulin pump which, again, stays in your skin 24 hours a day. You only have to move it maybe every three or four days. And then you just tell the little box how much insulin to give you, and it just pumps it straight in. And so you're not doing needle jabs anymore. Mm -hmm. So both of those pieces separately are really cool and have made a lot of kids' lives really easy. But fundamentally, there's this big gap in the market where those two pieces of technology don't talk to each other. You still have to have someone get the number from the glucose monitor, tell the number to the insulin pump. And because this is something that happens to kids, you have kids who are two and three years old with diabetes. Obviously, they're not going to be able to do that. You still have interaction from an adult and you also, there's a big room for error, mm -hmm. right? And if you screw it up, mm -hmm. you can die. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people with type 1 diabetes said, this is crap. These two pieces of technology should be talking to each other. It's very easy. And a lot of different people had managed to hack older forms of insulin pumps where they figured out, how do I give data to this insulin pump? Write a little program on like a Raspberry Pi motherboard or something and get the two things talking to each other. But the main insulin pump that most people apparently use these days is called the Omnipod. And it's cool and it's fancy and it's wireless and it's difficult to hack. Mm -hmm. And this guy, the author of the article, Paul Heltzel, basically said, I'm making it my mission. I'm not a programmer, but I feel like we can make this happen. And so he set out to attract programmers and say, hey, people help me with this problem. He started a Slack channel that ultimately got up to 2,000 people. Wow. He started a bounty so that they could pay. They could offer programmers, say, look, you got no dog in this fight, but if you help us out, we'll pay you. And the bounty got up to $30,000 in people's donations. Spoiler alert, they did it. But fundamentally, there were all of these crazy, crazy hoops that they had to jump through. Mm -hmm. So first, because it was wireless, they had to get the signals off of the pod somehow. They got old TV radio antennas, like the, the rabbit ears, and they would literally just sit next to the rabbit ears and do stuff on their Omnipod and try to catch the mm. airwaves coming off of their hip, off of the box. And then all they had was these big strings of hexadecimal code. So then they started uploading their data, like crowdsourcing the data, say, here's this giant code that my Omnipod gave off. This is what I was doing on it when it gave this code list all of these and see if we can find a pattern. Mm -hmm. And people did. They were looking at these massive strings of code and they found patterns. And one of the codes that like was really hard for them to get was there's an error code that the Omnipod gives off when it gets shocked by basically static electricity on your clothing. Mm. And that's not something that's very easy to artificially catch. So the author of the article actually took his dog's invisible fence collar <gasps> and literally just sat there and shocked himself <gasps> repeatedly. <laughs> to get this error message so that their data right. would be complete. And it's Dang. insane. And then one of the people who actually programmed the thing originally found them and unfortunately was like, yeah, that's proprietary. I've signed documents. I can't help you with anything, but good luck. Mm -hmm. you're, do you're doing good. <laughs> and at one point, they had this one tiny piece they couldn't get. They went to a University of Cambridge computer scientist and sort of laid it out and said, look, we know you guys are doing some really kind of interesting stuff with encryption. We really would like it if you could tell us what this little piece of data is doing. 
And he basically came back to them and was like, I can't tell you how I did this. I'm not going to explain anything. Here's your data. Don't ask questions. <laughs> and they did. They got the data. So anyway, they hacked this whole thing. And by this point, it had been years and years and years and word had spread. And they had this thing. They called it loop for closing the loop. Mm. And one of the other roadblocks they had was because it wasn't FDA approved, it could not be sold and it could not even be gifted. You cannot give someone a medical device that mm. is not FDA approved. So all they could do was put the instructions on how to make this little piece of technology mm. out there and say, if you want to do it, hey, our hands are clean. Mm. And within a day of posting the instructions on there, people started posting on social media all these pictures of like happy children on playgrounds and stuff wearing their Omnipods with a green circle drawn on it and marker to indicate oh. that it was modified. And it was just like, it seriously, I brought tears to my eyes. These kids were adorable. And this guy like made this thing happen. And now that it's out there and there's all these kids using this and not dying, <laughs> it's working really well. Now some nonprofits have come up and they're funding to like get uh, get it FDA approved, mm -hmm. which costs a ton of money. So, wow. so I'm, I'm kind of just bewildered as to why this space was so um, uninvested in I that. So were they. Kind That's of, sort yeah. of been this, mm -hmm. this sort of outrage. The hashtag that they kept using on social media is we are not waiting. Mm -hmm. And it's a bunch of kids and, a, and their parents going, this is nonsense. You should absolutely fill this hole in the market. And if you're not going to, we mm -hmm. will. Right. And it's not even like a hole in the market so much as it is just functionality of existing technology. Right. If the Omnipod people had been participating, this would have been a very, very short, easy project. But they were, no, that's our code. You can't I have mean, it. Did they have any response to this in terms of, you know, obviously, if you're tinkering with the stuff, it's going to void whatever warranty. And I'm sure they've got some legal CYA. But did they have anything in their defense to just acknowledge, oh, yeah, we should have done that? If they did not mention it. <laughs> I, that, <laughs> I'm sure whatever they would have to say would not be very, would not reflect well on them. Right. Yeah. Next link. Wow. Next, Next link. link. Okay, this is titled the 7,500 pound, as in the currency, dress that does not exist. Well, I should yeah. hope not at that price. Yeah. <laughs> this is just from the BBC uh, by uh, Cody Godwin. Um, earlier this year, Richard Ma, the chief executive of San Francisco-based security company Quantstamp, spent $9,500 on a dress for his wife, but the dress designed by Fashion House of the Fabricant is a digital dress, which can be rendered onto photographs. So this is not a real dress. It's, um, it's just for photo, like they're paying, Instagram. This is something that apparently a lot of high-end, well, not a lot, but at least a few, according <laughs> to this article, a few high-end fashion houses are experimenting with, which is the idea of, you know, digital clothing or like we will use our tools, which are tools that they already use, of course, to model clothes that they intend to produce. But they will just use these tools to create simply the model and sell you the right to use that model, I suppose, for to have it kind of shaped onto you in some kind of this gives a whole new meaning process. to like the emperor's new clothes. Mm -hmm. Like you're paying. That's insane. So it's not a pattern to actually construct and create a dress with fabric in real life. It's designed to be a dedicated digital asset. Yes. Right? Of some kind, I don't know exactly what the process is. It's just like you pay for the right to we'll add this to, you know, 10 of your photos because they, they model it to your pose in the photo. Sure. I imagine they're not even so giving you anything except photos. They're just saying, we're going to digitally put this stuff on your body and then send the photo back to you. Something like that. I mean, I think they can also uh, send you the, you know, whatever the software is, whatever file format they use, the 
file which contains the mm-hmm. 3D model of the dress. So I suppose if you, right, if you had the expertise, CAD, you can right. have the CAD file yeah. and have at it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm imagining is like, so you still have to go outside into the trees or whatever for your little Instagram shot. But I imagine that you can't be wearing something else too complicated if they're going to put this dress on you. So you get like people walking around in green screen bodysuits basically yeah, everywhere. I mean, but it, it, it makes a certain kind of sense if you look at these photos because it's like, yeah, you could wear your tracksuit and, you know, get to the top of whatever peak, something crazy like that. But what did make this make sense to me, as, as kind of nuts as it sounds, is that it was very much inspired by the uh, popularity of outfits in video games. Right, Fortnite digital. And, so forth. Yeah. and when I think back, it's like I haven't played video games really in like 10 years, but I used to play a lot of video games. And when I think about the total number of hours I put into like, it's like, oh, if I like, if I play this for another hour and I, I beat this level, I'll unlock the other pants. Right. For my character. <laughs> you know, I spent a lot of time, I think, unlocking pants. <laughs> uh, for a lot of digital Story characters. of your youth, that's yeah. right. Yeah, misspent youth. <laughs> Well, trying the, to get like palette swaps for Street Fighter mm-hmm. character outfits. And the yeah. next step of this is you don't even have to climb the mountain anymore. It's like you give them a digital rendering of your body and then they just put it together and they're like, oh, here you go. And you were never even there. Yeah. <laughs> like, that sounds steep. great. <laughs> that, yeah. that seems like a steep price for, you know, custom Photoshop. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very top of the line. Some of these houses are offering more like, you know, 11 bucks or <laughs> you can get like. You can get a kid to Photoshop that so fast. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can. Yeah, can't possibly be that hard. Some of these photos look pretty crummy, but some are pretty impressive. All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Uh, this article is a, let's see, irony article? I don't know. <laughs> satire? It's not necessarily deserved. It's not satire. It is a, you know, Venice is blooded right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, their regional council met Tuesday night to discuss measures to combat climate change. They rejected it. And then about two minutes later, their council chambers were flooded. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> they've never flooded before. Uh, this is the worst flooding Venice has had in 50 years. And it's a combo of things. Obviously, climate change is a big factor involved in that. But there's also these like channels that were dug to get some oil tankers in. Like through Venice. No, not through Venice. So Venice is in like a weird little sort of protected marshy swamp area. And so there's like a I'm making motions with my hands like the people can tell. But anyway, there's sort of like a barrier that separates it from the rest of the Mediterranean. But we dug these channels pretty recently. So that has actually like created this thing where the ocean is coming in easier. Also, Venice itself is a man-made structure. It's been sinking for a lot of years, hasn't it? So anyway, so everything, all these things together. uh, And also there's just natural tides. There's never any point where Venice is like... We're good. Flood free. Flood free. No, no, the the tides come in, the the seasons change. It's also sinking, also climate change. Anyway, have a council meeting. Talk about, hey, these are things we could do about climate change. No. No, we're not doing any of that. No, we're not. Two minutes later, water comes in. Too late, chumps. They got some photos of their very nice boardroom, very modern. You know, it's got some glass desks. It's got those like Eames replica Mm -hmm. chairs. It's what someone from the 1960s would have imagined a modern office would Mm -hmm. look like. Exactly. And, you know, it's about, I don't know, I'd say about thigh high with water. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's maybe a note to the world. Next time you reject some climate change initiatives, think about what might happen. Bring bring your floaties. Yeah. (laughs) Or, you know, I don't, you know, maybe the earth will start shaking or a volcano will erupt. You're going to change. You're going to reject this. All right. Listen up. Bring it in. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Next link. 
Next link. All right, let's talk about some feral hogs. Feral hogs. <laughs> we all yeah. remember the viral meme of the 30 to 50 feral hogs. Yes. Well, they are still up to no good, especially the ones that found and destroyed cocaine worth $22,000 hidden in the woods. Oh, no. <laughs> good job, That's hogs. right. Um, th- this was in a, an Italian forest. Police discovered this when they were uh, wiretapping a call in which the dealers were complaining about the incident. Dang boars. Um, also in the article, it notes it was not immediately known what happened to the curious animals. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they didn't make it. <laughs> or maybe think, they just had a really great time. I mean, today. yeah, that's assuming, A, they know what it was and kind of what to do with it, that they took enough of it instead of maybe just like, you know, spearing it and tossing it all around. Like the better angels of my nature are thinking of some kind of like Disney woodland forest hoedown where everybody was just like. Like a snow globe, like throw, like having a party, not necessarily eating And maybe it. they just got like a little bit messed up. Duran, just a little Duran, bit. Duran, just enough to have a good time. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was the criminal's fault for burying it with all the truffles like that was they should have known better yeah. you yeah. know people are searching in the woods for delicious things in the forests of italy <laughs> hide your cocaine somewhere else maybe these feral hogs are just they're just cops maybe they're vice cops maybe they're, they're pigs cops. yeah oh. <laughs> yeah 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 they're like but like I, I can picture them with the you know miami vice colors and two two pigs wearing like open Pastel blazers leaning against, uh, you know, sunglasses, hot rod like Ray Bans. Yeah, 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 that feels very, very vibey to me. I, I can see that. Sure, yeah. visco pigs, mm-hmm. visco, visco, visco <laughs> pigs. They've got Burks yeah. on, <laughs> giant t-shirts, hydro flags, some, mm-hmm. <laughs> some yeah. puka shell necklaces. Probably a boar can do a lot of cocaine, though. Like They're a lot very more than big human. and aggressive. I think they probably could. They take, take their lines two at a time. Yeah. <laughs> it takes, double line. I, I, this might be completely wrong, but I think I read that it takes one generation for them to be feral. So the fact that we're getting all these feral hog stories is a failure on us to provide the right social infrastructure for pigs to make sure that incoming piglets have a cornerstone of a good life. They need like a scared straight pro- program is what you're saying. Like I mean, <laughs> maybe not so much. Maybe they just need uh, a, a more uh, rigid educational system. If we had the funding, you if know. If we had it's the, the funding. <laughs> Yeah. Or maybe just, you know, a more caring education system. Or characters to look up to in the mass media like the Visco pigs. That's right. That's if you right. if you if they had seen representation of themselves, they might have understood that there was a different way. I can be a cool pig. Representation <laughs> cool, matters. Cool hot rod. Um, All right. Next link. Next, next link. All right. So this one, the title is How the World's Biggest Gun Helped Solve a Longstanding Space Mystery. <laughs> Uh, And it is true. There is the world's biggest gun featured in this article. It comes from the Technology Review. But the more interesting aspect of this is what they shot with the gun. So there is sort of this ongoing issue that sometimes crops up, but it's more something we're thinking about for the future of debris in space. You know, there's just a ton of it floating around. They've cataloged hundreds of thousands of these pieces. But our, our very best radar can only detect something that's three millimeters or bigger. And we know that there is some stuff that is smaller. And they're kind of, they were saying, you know, we want to know how much. What percentage, if a satellite gets destroyed by something, what percentage of it turns into these tiny little particles that we can no longer track and that are out there being dangerous for other satellites in orbit? So what they did was they built a satellite that wasn't actually functioning, but it had all the pieces, and they called it Debrisat. Mm -hmm. And they put it at the very end of this long-barreled gun. It's 192 feet long. It's underground. I don't know why... 
they already had it and they were using it in other weapons tests, but somehow they decided this was the thing to use. They shot something that was the size of a soda can, 15,000 miles per hour, right into this satellite. And in the room that the satellite was in, they had lined the walls with these foam panels. So everything blows up. The satellite basically disintegrates. All the pieces get stuck into the wall. And then they took all the foam panels down. They sent them to a strip mall in Florida where they had set up a station to basically say, I want you to now catalog all the pieces that are in there. Get little tweezers, take out every piece, weigh it, catalog what type of material it is, what color is it, what part of the satellite did it come from. We want to know everything about how this satellite exploded. And now initially, this was supposed to take one year. They said, get back to us in a year. Tell us what you found. It is still ongoing, has been ongoing for five years. <laughs> they have currently pulled out 195,000 pieces of debris, oh. and they anticipate that there are approximately 100,000 more. And the really sad thing is that all of this physical labor of taking these tiny tweezers and pulling out these minuscule little bits of metal and weighing them, it's being done by unpaid university students. Oh. So the University of Florida has been providing, you know, these kids go in for an internship or they do whatever. <laughs> providing. That's right. Oh. And just tweezing yeah. shrapnel. But the, the really, really unfortunate thing is that, like, the more data they get, the more depressing it is because the vast, vast majority of these pieces are under two millimeters. Mm-hmm. They're just, like, carbon fibers and they're little. Mm-hmm. And they have the absolute potential to take out a satellite. If one just happens to hit your propulsion tank, you're done. Mission ended. And every satellite that gets hit becomes more debris. Mm. So it just compounds itself. And it's it's an issue that they're pretty much like the guy who is running this study out in Gainesville, Florida. He was like, you know, it's <laughs> this is not happy data that we're getting. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. paints a pretty bleak picture. At some point, we're going to have to figure out a way to clean up the debris. And he's like, we don't know how we're going to do that. We barely know how to do that on Earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Big old net, like a net. Sky, that's right, like a sky net. Yeah, big old. Oh no, not a sky net. What have you done? Oh no. I, I mean, surely magnets could take some of it. A lot of it's plastic sure. now, though. That was one of the things they said: is it used to be metal, and that was easier. It broke into bigger <laughs> chunks, but the plastic apparently it's like fiberglass. Like it just gets into uh, these that is itty a bitty. Truly harrowing thought that we might have already put too much trash mm-hmm. into space. I believe it though, hundred okay. yeah. percent. That's pretty much what he was saying. Little bit, little bit goes a long way in the void you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> if we could make like a super fine mesh though and just sort of trawl the you know outer atmosphere just scrape it up like what other kind of cool stuff what might we find i'm thinking about the of course the sci-fi version of this of like what the job is of the person who does this they're like, like bruce willis basically they're like some <laughs> sort of like bad man you know like yeah like i you know my family they're all dead so i'm up here trawling for trash that's right well he and he's been trawling for fish his family's been trawling for fish for yeah. generations so they know nets and don't he, tell I him about nets, nets. <laughs> all right next link next, next link. link ah all right self-checkout lines who's used one we've all oh, yeah. used, oh, yeah. used one today oh, <laughs> they're great you don't have to talk to anyone Mm-mm. You could just keep your head down, keep mm-hmm. your thoughts in on your own anxieties. <laughs> you know. Really just descend inward. Yeah. Don't worry that anyone knows what you bought. Good Lord. It's embarrassing. You bought bread. You bought a snack. Which, <laughs> they all have, bread is the most embarrassing thing you could think of to I buy. Just, <laughs> I mean, they all have cameras anyway, too, right? Yeah. I mean, they're they're tracking you. Yeah. Anyhow, this this article from the uh, CBC, so uh, this is from Canada, so our, our, our siblings to the north also mm-hmm. are doing self-checkout, if you're curious. It's not 
strictly an American phenomenon. <laughs> Canadians have uh, self-checkout? <laughs> this is a... <laughs> This is an article by uh, Sophia Harris on uh, CBC News. Uh, it's titled, A Crime of Opportunity, Why Some Shoppers Steal at Self-Checkout. And I really give it up for this article, which is kind of a masterpiece of like low stakes, like news <laughs> storytelling. I just like the way it's written just kind of rings out in my head. Like, you know, self-checkout theft is an acknowledged problem. This is the lead. Mm -hmm. um, but what's less talked about is who's committing the crime. Turns out it may be someone you know. <laughs> Even you. That's like <laughs> <laughs> it might be someone you know, including yourself. You might not be aware. <laughs> this is like expert level Canadian concern trolling. It's That's really true. It's they they are concerned for our well being that you might be stealing. You need to think about it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so you might funny. be associating with a stealer. <laughs> <laughs> it's so like wonderfully like kind of low stakes the question they're asking, and yet they're they get at fundamental questions of human nature. It's like that you know one of the people who's running these studies so this is all about studies trying to determine like well do people steal more when they have the opportunity to self-check out or when not canadian and like <laughs> part of it comes down to a philosophical question because the researchers are like well it's you know it's very hard to determine like is someone stealing or did they make a mistake getting away from so they're like they're they're very <laughs> they're trying to get very thin slices of the psychology <laughs> of when does trying to get away with something slowly cross the line into actively like doing something wrong? Yeah, like I bet Dexter stole. Mm. Like it's what it's the, the making of a serial killer. You start small and you got to move your way up. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. true. That's true. The implications to go from misscanning something to uh, being, being, a to being a serial killer. I could be a serial killer. Yeah, I have a hard enough time making those things work correctly. I don't know that I could be so so sneaky as to like find a way to trick them like i just mm -hmm. is I, your is your lack of self-directed rigor about the checkout machine does that equal stealing that's true you maybe. know you're probably getting it wrong it could you're not be asking me. for help it could be you <laughs> it could be you there's could a lot you. to unpack here it all seems pretty moot because the stores are like yeah it's fine <laughs> <They're> like, <laughs> stores we, so stuff was getting stolen before self-checkout yeah, we yeah. don't it's yeah big grocery store a lot of stuff gets stolen. Yeah, they build that into their budgets and projections, I'm certain. They yes. do, actually. I used to work, my, one of my first jobs was at a grocery store, and they call it shrink. And that's because the, the inventory shrinks. And it's like, mm. what, what kind of shrink did we have today? And it, the numbers were astounding. It was something like 10% was acceptable. It's like literally 10% of your stuff. And it's not all stolen. Some of it's spoiled. Some right. of it's spilled or whatever. But they were like, yeah, we lose mm. about 10% of our stuff. I was like, that seems crazy so to me. So it's not stealing. It's shrinking. Exactly. Mm. Or mm. what if it was something that was going to get thrown out anyway? They throw out stuff. It's rescuing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're Freaking. rescuing that spoiled meat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. Uh, this article is about the x-ray craze of 1896. Uh, the x-ray was invented in 1895, and people were nuts for it. Uh, you could buy or build your own x-ray in your home. Uh, they were these Victorians were obsessed with it. They loved looking at their bones with their <laughs> with their rings around them. So like the radiation and everything, they were just like, "We'll ship that to you. You set it up." I, I mean, I don't even really know that they had any concept of what was happening. But they knew that it was something very, very underneath all of that clothing that you definitely aren't that's supposed true. to see. If you're all sexually repressed, mm -hmm. seeing somebody's skeleton? Like, like that's that. the deepest inside look yeah. you could possibly get. And, Woo! you know, like uh, they were very much into like you could diagnose medical problems and even maybe cure some medical problems with x-rays, you know. 
maybe like expunge some things with the x-rays. You know, it's all very squishy at that time. Mm -hmm. My favorite part, though, and the reason why I wanted to talk about this article is this photo of what appears to be a train caboose. It has an x-ray inside it. You can x-ray now, it says. It has lit up with uh, those light bulbs like you'd find in a vaudeville theater. (laughs) X-ray now. It says, easy, confidential, no undressing. <laughs> that um, makes sense if no if they did, wanted to be seen by a doctor but remain clothed from like chin to toes. Yes, mm-hmm. it's it, it's an amazing photo just imagining <laughs> you are somewhere and you can be like, "Honey, we can get x-rayed." <laughs> and it was mobile, like this was on a truck? Well, it's like a it's like a train caboose. I I imagine it wasn't mobile. It probably was parked wherever it was. But people would they would have like those exhibitions, those things, mm-hmm. you know, like they, the World's Fair kind of thing. They were things. big into that stuff and they would have people volunteer to come up and have their purses mm-hmm. x-rayed or their hands x-rayed. Uh, and it was touted as like germicidal and beautifying, but you know, like this was also just like the pet rock or, you know, mm-hmm, whatever yeah. it died as fast as it was born. <laughs> yeah. The Victorians had great crazes because, oh, yeah. you know, it's just, I think it was just kind of a time in, in history where the rate of like crazy new innovations and discoveries was like proliferating. To the point where it was kind of first starting to break the human mind. Our minds are all like totally fully broken now. I feel like we're in like, another yeah. one of those time periods yeah. now where I'm just looking at it going, I can't. I can't process any of this. Yeah. You want to send me a, a thing in for my house? Okay. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. Yeah. It was the great age of like dissection where mm. they were like, wait a minute. We can take these things apart mm-hmm. and yeah. take like a look, a look at what's inside of them. They were doing this with animals and insects and all that stuff. Yeah. So like the fact that you were able to dissect yourself. Without having to die. Yeah, without having to die. Or you could just look inside your purse. <laughs> I gotta be, if, if, if I could somehow be convinced that there was no, you know, long-term radiation damage, I'd get x-rayed, like, on a casual basis. I'd you mean, like, like yeah. every time you go fly? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, next right. link. Next, next link. link. Uh, let's talk about Play-Doh. Wait, the guy or the material? Excellent question. The material. Okay. <laughs> Play Way more interesting. Dough. Um, so this is from David Kindy uh, from smithsonian.com, and uh, it's titled The Accidental Invention of Play-Doh. Hmm. So like most beloved household, even childhood things, it was an accident. So uh, the company was called Kutol K-U-T-O-L products. It was founded in 1912 in Cincinnati, and their flagship product was a soft, pliable compound used for wiping soot from wallpaper. So it was kind of like those magic erasers, Mm -hmm. but for wallpaper and for soot, and it was squishy. Um, The problem was in the 50s, uh, due to a number of things, you know, wallpaper wasn't really a thing anymore. People were using other heating elements that weren't producing as much soot. The company started to kind of have a bit of a decline. How do they turn things around? Well, the CEO's sister-in-law, who was a, I think, a nursery school teacher, she read an article out in the world about how wallpaper cleaner could be used for modeling projects. And so she's got a bunch of kids around. She's a nursery school teacher. She tested the material, confirmed it was non-toxic, and they loved it. The formula hasn't changed all that much. Um, They've kind of reduced the salt amount so it doesn't dry out like the older ones used to dry out a lot faster. But it's basically a mixture of flour, water, salt, borax, and mineral oil. That's interesting that you say they've reduced the salt content. My understanding was always that the salt was in there to prevent kids from eating it. That basically, Mm. like, that was what they told me was that it's super salty so that the kids won't. They might put it in their mouth once or twice, but they're not going to want to eat it. Because it is edible, but you don't want to be eating all the Play-Doh. It's good Mm -hmm. for you. (laughs) 
the article didn't mention whether it was a deterrent, but I, I would expect that to be the case just because kids have really super sensitive taste buds. and Well, and it, it makes sense from a preservative standpoint. Otherwise, it would get moldy real fast. Right. So. right. It, it then became like the biggest seller. They kind of pivoted into children's toys. They now have different textures and colors. The original color was white, which I'm sure was so you could make sure you're getting all the soot or whatever, but um, gets really gross. So then they rolled out red, yellow, and blue from the primary colors. You can make and mix all kinds of things, but now they've got uh, glitter. They've got foam. The slime thing is really huge with kids right now, so they've moved into slime, the play sets. I'm and done. I'm <laughs> done. Yeah. I cannot currently encounter some Play-Doh without sticking my nose fully into it and taking a huge inhale. That's funny. The article <laughs> mentions how the smell is instantly nostalgic for so many people who did grow up like playing with it or if they're at a fair and people will just smell it and get transported to their childhood. It's, it's like, yeah, it is literally like I've moved to another <laughs> really? place. Yeah, I, I think they've it. even tried to patent the fragrance of it. Like it's got hints of vanilla and cherry, <laughs> even though it is mostly <gasps> salty. But yeah, it just smells the, like... I'll, I'll I'll be the voice of dissent here. I think it smells disgusting. Oh, I hate it. But it's, it's recognizable. Amazing. It is absolutely. I don't yeah. deny that. I yeah. can smell it across the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Real Proustian and Madeline. That's yeah. right. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad that you joined us. Hey, uh, guys, you want to hear about a cool new service that ships tiddlywinks to your home on a monthly basis? No. Now. What about a new way to order your shower water online? No, I've already what? water is already in my shower. <laughs> what did you do with the water in my shower? <laughs> So obviously we're not going to talk about those because we don't have sponsors. Much as we love monthly services and ordering things in a new, easy-to-use app, we're not into that. We're not into telling you about it, and we don't want to have advertisements on our podcast. We are listener and donor-supported. We would love it if you would visit our Patreon at Damn Interesting Week. You can also go to damninteresting.com and donate the old-fashioned way and just include a note that you did it for the weekly podcast because you like us. Because we like us, and we like doing this, and we hope that you want to keep hearing more of this. We are off next week, but we will see you in another week after Thanksgiving. Until then, I'm Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Curtis Luciani. I'm Courtney Hopkin. And I'm Angela Epley. And please have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.